Much of what I want to explore today is locked in to our understanding of how music sits within a given period of time. Imagine, for the sake of the point I want to make, that the history of music is the story of a journey, a dynamic journey that carves its way through a constantly changing landscape. Dynamism and change. Every step of this journey has been won from the fruits of experience. It's a journey of reactions and counter-reactions, and most importantly, of growth. A cursory glance at the current vista, touch base with contemporary thought, and on. The history of music is the story of non-stop progress. Now, to put it very simply, and perhaps a little less abstractly, the ornate counterpoint of Bach and his contemporaries gives way to the lucid clarity of the mid-18th century, and so to Haydn and Mozart, which in turn spawns the passionate outpourings advanced by Beethoven, who ignited the spirit of the 19th century romantics. But then comes the 20th century. Huge technological, social, ideological innovations, and very significantly horrors such as world war. Everything changes. What was once progress is seriously questioned, and the historical musical path suddenly fragments. To borrow a notion from the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, there's a kind of re-evaluation of all values. The cultural landscape becomes confused and alienating. Artists become reflective. I guess they started to ponder the course and the meaning of this whole musical journey, and as a consequence, their relationship with musical history changes. was The Frightened Linnet by Richard Strauss. It's part of a final collection of arrangements of early 18th century keyboard music by François Couperin-Legrand, which Strauss set to create a ballet initially in the 1920s. Now, Strauss continued adding to the collection, and by the 1940s, he created what we now know as his divertimento. And I'm exploring it today with the BBC Concert Orchestra leader, Charles Mutter. The divertimento is not one of Strauss's best-known works, nor, might it be argued, is it one of his more profound pieces. But over and above its many charms, it does illustrate an aspect of his music that was clearly important to him. When we think of Strauss, it's perhaps those late 19th century symphonic poems that spring to mind. You know, Don Juan, Also Sprach Zarathustra. And then again, there are his radical, almost expressionistic operas, Zalame and Electra, from the first decade of the 20th century. But after this, in the years around World War I, in fact from about 1910, Strauss's output took an interesting turn. He produced Der Rosenkavalier, 
an opera perhaps more popular than any he'd created to date, but which owes a clear debt to the 18th century and particularly to Mozart. This he followed with music whose inspiration lies in the 18th century, his music for Moliere's The Bourgeois Gentleman, and his opera Ariadne auf Naxos, drawing allusions to the Commedia dell'arte and the French Baroque. And it was around this time that he began to work on these Couperin arrangements, pieces he described as being in the style of the period. And I'm going to be focusing on a handful of them. So, let's give Strauss himself something of a historical context. He was born in 1864, he died in 1949. It's often been said that the 20th century Strauss became something of a musical anachronism. He himself spoke of a fear that his music was grotesquely out of touch with the times. But if he harbored such fears, why did he concern himself in the music and sentiments of the past? Well, before we look in detail at Strauss's arrangements, let me first turn to the source of the divertimento, the 18th century keyboard pieces of Couperin. With me today is harpsichordist Carol Chirazzi. Carol, can you tell me something about Couperin's keyboard music? What sort of music is it? He wrote four books of harpsichord pieces, and where the first book contains more classically Baroque dancers, such as Almond, Courants, Sarabands, from the second book onwards, they really are character pieces, they're very often short pieces, mostly very short pieces, which tends to make people think of little salon pieces. But if you look behind the very rigid form, they're actually very, very beautiful, very expressive. It's a very refined style of music, very often very passionate pieces. And they have these strange and wonderful titles. Yes, they often do. Either portraits of people he knew, portraits of places, and often we just don't know. And you've brought a piece along, one such, called Les Barricades Mysterieuses. For a start, what's that mean? Mysterious barricades. No one knows, but if you'd called it Prelude in B-flat, it would be no less beautiful. Carol Cerasi with Couperin's Les Barricades Mysterieuses. Now, Carol, in order to play this music, you have to familiarize yourself with a feeling for 18th century French style. And if you were to perform the piece La Visionnaire, for example, also by Couperin, could you suggest how we should try and listen to this with something resembling early 18th century ears? Well, for a start, although it doesn't say this on the piece, any 18th century performer would know it's a French overture. 
not entirely it lacks the last section, but it's clearly with its dotted rhythm, very noble pacing, a sort of freedom of rhythm so that a 20th century person or 19th century would be brought up to learn that you play the rhythm exactly as it is on the page. And an 18th century person would know that when you have a dotted rhythm, you hold it as long as you think it needs to be held, and then you squash the fast notes where you think they need to be. So in a lively piece, they'll be squashed faster. In a tender piece, you won't wait as long for them. There's much more freedom of rhythm. Can we hear that in action? Yes. So immediately we sense there's a, a tremendous feeling of freedom around the decorations, the ornaments um, in the piece. Yes, although Couperin was very strict in his markings and he wrote that he was fed up with people changing what he'd so carefully set down in the published music and he asked the performer to add nothing and take away nothing. But it's fairly exceptional. Most music you would feel quite free with improvising within a certain style. So for Couperin, certainly, there's a, a strong and quite exacting sense of what is good taste on the one hand and what is poor taste Absolutely. on the other. Absolutely. He was very keen. Also, was the whole French style of refinement and taste. The problem for us is knowing what they call good taste sometimes. And that is never explained. Well, the 20th century musical world of Richard Strauss is fantastically different from that of Couperin. The musical resources open to Strauss would have been completely beyond anything that Couperin could have imagined. Armed with these 20th century resources, let's now look at how Strauss chooses to treat Couperin. Well, the notes are the same, but I hope you agree the effect is very different from the sort of 18th century ideals we heard expressed by Carroll. To be fair, Strauss couldn't possibly have had the same understanding of 18th century period performing practice that we have today. But, as I would argue, and despite his subtitle, In the Style of the 18th Century, it was never Strauss's intention to recreate lock, stock and barrel, the age of Couperin. He was, after all, a great creative artist with his own set of aesthetic intentions and motivations. He was not a musical historian. For a start, just think about the scoring for a minute, the instrumentation of this orchestral ensemble. It's not a 19th century romantic orchestra, it's too small, and it certainly isn't 
a kind of group of instruments that would be typical of the classical era, that's the late 18th century, or indeed the Baroque era of earlier in the 18th century, because it has instruments in it like the trombone, and particularly the corps anglais, which wasn't even invented until around about 1760. In a later movement, le tic-toc choc, Strauss includes Couperin's own instrument, the harpsichord, hardly a 20th century orchestral instrument, but for obvious reasons, its color instantly evokes a pre-classical past. Now, Carl, it's interesting, there's a sort of description of the genre in Couperin's Le Tic-Toc Shock. He writes, pièce croisée. What is that? It's a type of piece which requires a double manual harpsichord, meaning a harpsichord with two keyboards, where generally the lower one will have the warmer, more lyrical sound, and the top one will be slightly more nasal and softer. And it's written in such a way that the hands are right above each other, so you cannot play it on a normal single manual instrument. It's really for a special effect of sound coloring. And a TikTok shock, you would either put the left hand on the bottom keyboard and the right hand up, giving you this. Or what's more common, and I would probably choose, is the right hand down and the left hand up. How would you translate le tic-toc shock? Well, I wouldn't translate it at all. Um, the, the last part of the title, le tic-toc shock ou les maillotins, um, according to research done by Jane Clark, who's really looked into the meaning of the titles, there was a family of fairground rope dancers called maillots, and it may refer to the acrobatics performed by them. The acrobatics of one hand of on one top hand of the other. Of one hand above the other, the interweaving, interweaving of the voices. Well, Strauss is not concerned with the cross-hand games and technical puzzles in his arrangement. And as we'll see, he uses Couperin's music to create a post-18th century emotional effect. Notice the distinct colouring of the oboe and French horn used to highlight a crucial rhythmic idea in Couperin's original. The horn was a very important instrument for Strauss. His father was a horn player and he used the horn to great effect in his orchestral pieces. The horn was very important to the French Baroque as well. But Strauss's use resonates with his own romantic sound world. If you like, we have here a Straussian hallmark. Rather than deference to the hunting illusions or the sense of outdoors, that the horn held in Couperin's day.
Another feature of Strauss's arrangement is his introduction of secondary themes, ideas not found in the original Couperin, but specially created by Strauss. But perhaps one of the most interesting things about Strauss's arrangement is his expansion of musical structure. His desire to take the music beyond the formal constraints of the original. As wonderful as Couperin's pieces are, they're really quite short and structurally comparatively simple. Doubtless, this is part of the music's charm. Nevertheless, in transferring these keyboard pieces to the larger canvas of the orchestra, Strauss knew that more was required, hence the invention of secondary themes. But how to expand the form? His answer was simple. Combine two or more of Couperin's pieces into one. And the way he does this is quite ingenious. For example, the piece that Strauss chose to combine with Le Tic-Toc Shock is called, rather ironically, The Tease, La Lutine. Strauss needs to make the transition from one piece to the next seem seamless, to suggest that both works by Couperin are natural bedfellows. In fact, they're entirely separate works. But by taking this opening figure from La Lutine and giving it to the high woodwind, Strauss is able to anticipate the new piece, suggesting it even before Le Tic-Toc Shock has finished. So, one piece seems to grow naturally out of the other. But the most ingenious aspect of Strauss's expansion of the musical form comes at the end of this movement. Even though the two pieces have completely different time signatures, even different characters, Strauss creates a way of juxtaposing one on top of the other. The resultant emotional effect is radically different from anything that Couperin and his contemporaries would have attempted. So, what did Strauss make these arrangements for? I mentioned earlier that he had the ballet in mind. Between the wars, Strauss was living in Vienna, and the first theatrical outing of some of these arrangements was for the Vienna Carnival in 1923. His ballet soiree in the style of Louis XV was presented at the sumptuous Redoutensaal in the Vienna Hofburg. 
Strauss continued to add to the work, and in the 1940s he turned it into what he called the Verklungene Feste, translation, bygone festivities, the sounds of which have faded away. This was for the state opera ballet in Munich. Not only was the music drawn from the 18th century, but the dance was based on French Baroque choreography. After this, Strauss turned his arrangements into a concert suite, which he called the Divertimento. There is much in this music that evokes dance. Some of Couperin's originals are actually modeled on Baroque dance forms, but Strauss's treatment of the pieces suggests other nuances. For example, in La Lutine, the way he takes Couperin's graceful 18th century lines and transforms them into an elegant, swirling, almost carefree figure. Ask yourself, what is the picture that comes to mind here? I don't know about you, but for me, Strauss's music seems to favor early 19th century Vienna rather than the court ballets of Louis XV's Versailles. movement is called Les Fauvettes Plaintives, the Plaintive Warblers. Again, Strauss's use of color is paramount. The orchestra is pruned down to a bare minimum, and the wistful, melancholy nature of Couperin's keyboard piece seems transformed into a parody of a Baroque chamber sonata. Strauss's allusion to 18th century good taste? The music, no doubt, like the warblers, appropriately caged and contained. But Strauss can't resist opening the door of the cage just a little. He has the woodwinds create loud, fleeting interjections, as if to suggest the bird's desire to fly off up into the clouds. It's a pleasingly theatrical moment, offering the potential for a colorful point of interest in the dance. But it's not in the original, nor indeed are the lilting triplets you heard in the plucked strings. So Strauss is not slavish in these arrangements. It's true, there are ideas and notions from the past that he's trying to evoke, but the past is far from the whole picture. 
Neither do I think that the picture is a simple and naive dressing up of Couperin in 20th century garb. Given its modern context, the psychology and the aesthetic intent here is a lot more complex. Let's just take the beginning of the next movement, the trophy. First of all, I'm going to ask Carol to play me the opening of Couperin's original. Festive, certainly, by 18th century standards. But now, let's add Strauss's orchestration. Tambourines, triangle, celesta, harp, trumpets and drums, and, of course, the harpsichord, a wonderful melee of sounds, inauthentic to any period of music, and such a hybrid set of illusions. There almost seems to be a sense of fair ground in the music. And what about that newly invented counter-theme that Strauss adds? We're a long way from Couperin's world. There's not even an attempt at French pastiche there. It's more like a German street song. So, throughout the piece, there's a sense of Strauss subtly subverting the very thing that he claims to be trying to recreate. That is, the age of Louis XIV or XV. Strauss did take great delight in layering his music with allusions and quotes from the past. Even in his more successful and serious works, such as his operas, it's not difficult to find references to 18th century Italian music, Mozart, Johann Strauss, the so-called Waltz King, Commedia dell'arte. In his rarely heard opera, The Silent Woman, Die Schweigsame Frau, he even dips into the likes of Monteverdi in the 16th century English Fitzwilliam virginal book. Strauss wasn't unique, of course. Lots of composers at this time were drawing on music from the past. Think of Hindemith, Debussy, Ravel, Stravinsky, most famously, in works such as Pulcinella, and as we'll see in a short while, Ottorino Respighi in Italy. The list is a long one, and you can find some very similar things going on in other art forms as well. For Strauss, the entire history of music had become a rich resource there to be tapped. By periodically mining that resource, Strauss could create novel hybrids of style prompting new associations and meanings, and he could say something different about his own position within the great pantheon of musical history. Remember that strange title for the Munich version of the ballet, Verklungener Festa? Bygone festivities, the sounds of which have faded away. Perhaps Strauss found the juxtaposition of the long-past French Baroque, for which court ballet and the music of Couperin and his contemporaries represent a pinnacle in the history of art, and references to his own culture, the gradually disappearing 19th century Austro-Germanic tradition, especially resonant. Is Strauss trying to suggest some feeling of historical continuity in what was, as I've already pointed out, a period of great uncertainty? It could be argued that Strauss's relationship with the past gave him the means to continue to find things to say. He didn't crumble before the challenges posed by the arrival of the 20th century, unlike many of his contemporaries, and went on composing right until his death in 1949. 
With music suffused with a sense of past, he went on to create great reflective works such as The Four Last Songs and Metamorphosen, the latter being a response to the destruction of the city of Dresden after the Second World War, and a work which, incidentally, draws on the past music of Beethoven and Wagner to achieve its effect. Interestingly, one critic asked after an early performance of Strauss's ballet, will this evening have historical significance someday? Will the musical city of Vienna be glorified again? Well, with the BBC Concert Orchestra, leader Charles Mutter and the harpsichordist Carol Cerasi will perform a selection of movements from Strauss's 1942 divertimento now, all based on keyboard pieces by Couperin. They are La Visionnaire, then Le Tic-Toc Choc, which incorporates La Lutine, Les Fauvettes Plaintives, and finally, an amalgamation of four separate Couperin pieces, Le Trophée, L'Anguille, Les Jeunes Seigneurs, and La Linotte, Effarouché. <laughs> 